Section 76 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Greg Giordano. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow. Suicide, Part 8, Jacob C. Wallace, Part 2. It appears by the evidence of these witnesses, in common with that of Maggie Wallace, that Mr. Wallace entered the wood shortly after 1 p.m., that no one had preceded him on horseback that day, as the tracks in the road distinctly proved, that Nora Pemberton followed immediately afterwards over the same road, and passed the place where his dead body was found, and returning home, she again passed the spot a little earlier than half-past four o'clock, that Maggie in about half an hour afterwards discovered the body and called assistance. To all appearances, Wallace had been dead but a few moments when the parties arrived where the body lay. It further appears that Wallace rode past the spot when he went towards Mr. Quick's. They did not keep in the road leading to Mr. Quick's, but turned off at the fork, and that the tracks of two horses going from and of two horses coming towards the place where the body was found were the tracks of the horses ridden by Wallace and Nora Pemberton. There were no footprints of any other horses. The evidence further shows that Mr. Wallace left home to go directly to the house of Mr. Quick, that he never reached his destination, and that he was not lying dead by the roadside when Nora Pemberton passed the spot at four o'clock or later. Where was he, and what was he doing, during those three hours? Probably the mystery never will be wholly cleared up, but we know that he was not in pursuit of the business upon which he said he was going. At a distance of not more than eighty rods from where the shooting occurred, a man and his son were at work, quarrying rock. The son heard a shot fired at about five o'clock, and called his father's attention to the fact at the time, saying that somebody was hunting in the woods. The father did not hear the firing, as he was down in a stone pit at the time. They both heard the bell of Mr. Wallace's cow at the same time, in the same woods. They both are positive that they could and would have heard shouts or calls for help if Mr. Wallace had made any. The shot heard by the young man was, undoubtedly, the one which caused Mr. Wallace's death, and this evidence fixes the time of shooting at a few minutes prior to the discovery of the body by Maggie. Mr. Wallace knew that Maggie would be there very soon for the cows, and it was learned that he had expressed the hope that his body would be quickly found if anything should happen to him in the woods. Instances had occurred in that vicinity, wherein persons lying insensible in the woods had been mutilated by hogs, and that Wallace was apprehensive of such mutilations of his body was evident from his expression of such fears to his family and to others. If it should so happen, and Maggie did not come for the cows at the usual time. Mr. Wallace well knew that the old mare, which he rode, would go home to its nursing colt, when he would be missed and a search quickly instituted. The marks of highway robbery, which were scattered so conspicuously in the road near where the body lay, served also to arrest attention to the body itself. If this was the work of an assassin. It certainly was very effectual in leading to the prompt finding of the murdered man. Had the murderer left his victim at some spot in the woods, 
thus opened to public view, it is certain that the body would have been mutilated, if not devoured, by the hogs with which the woods were filled. On the other hand, by placing the body in the bushes, within full view from the road, it was saved from the mutilation which Wallace had stood in fear of, and the evidences of murder were thereby retained. The rifled pocket-book, papers and the envelopes which were thrown loosely about the roadside, thus served the double purpose of pointing out where the body lay and suggesting highway robbery. In one of these envelopes, Mr. Wallace was supposed to have placed the money which he was carrying to Mr. Quick. He had called his wife's attention to a roll of bank bills a little while before he left the house, and he was seen to place the letters and envelopes in the inside breast pocket of his coat. Certain facts in connection with this go to prove that if there was a robbery, it took place prior to the shooting. The fatal shot was fired directly through this breast pocket without harm to its contents. The small bullet perforated its very central portion, and not a paper therein could have escaped it. It is thus shown, conclusively, that the pocket wherein the letters and envelopes were carried had been emptied prior to the shooting. If robbed at all, he was first robbed, then murdered. This leads to a conclusion of the evidence of a struggle in mortal combat. It will be remembered that the iron bridle ring was broken, from which fact it was inferred that Wallace had been dragged forcibly from his horse. His shirt bosom and collar were found torn open, the buttons being missing, and his vest was torn along the seam on the left side, from the bottom to near the armhole. All these, if occasioned by a struggle with an assassin, indicate a prolonged struggle. This condition would lead us to expect other visible signs of assault and violence, but upon the evidence of the examining physicians, there were none whatever. When they first saw the body, it had not been disturbed, but lay upon the ground as when first discovered. The face was placid, and upon a careful inspection, they found absolutely no mark of violence upon the person of the deceased, other than the bullet wound. Not a scratch, nor a bruise, nor a finger mark upon the face, throat, or hands of a man, supposed to have been killed after a protracted struggle, wherein his clothes were torn, and his horse's bridle broken, in the resistance he had made. He lay upon his back, with his arms by his side, and his old straw hat was lying two or three feet distant from his head. If an assassin had violently torn him from his horse, robbed him, then dragged his dead body into the bushes, why was that old hat afterwards carried and tenderly placed near his head? There is much significance in the evidence of the men who instituted a careful search for some clue whereby they supposed murderer might be tracked and followed. They looked carefully and examined the ground closely and could find no evidence of there having been a struggle in the vicinity. They first supposed the body had been dragged or carried to where it lay, but on examination found no mud on the clothes, not even on the boots, and there being no disturbance of the leaves, they came to the irresistible conclusion that it was not possible for the body to have been dragged. Additional search was then made to find signs of persons recently carrying a heavy burden. There were none whatever. This search was immediately after the death, and while the body was yet warm. Nobody had then arrived to efface or disturb such indications, had there been any. Evidently the body had not been stirred since its death. The place where the body lay was a cluster of swamp dogwood, some ten or fifteen feet in height, and the spot where the pistol was found was some forty-five feet farther in the woods. 
It was an easy toss for a well-man to throw the pistol over the bushes to that distance. There is no reasonable doubt of Mr. Wallace having lived long enough to be able to do it. The pistol had a revolving cylinder with six chambers for small metallic cartridges. When found, all were loaded but one, which one contained the shell of a recently discharged bullet. There certainly was no good reason why an assassin should throw away his loaded pistol in this manner. If it was to be left for the purpose of giving the deed a coloring of suicide, then assuredly it would have been much more sensible and natural to leave it near the body and to throw it where it was not likely to be found at all. No wound which a suicide may inflict is distinctly characteristic of suicide, as a similar wound may be made at the hands of an assailant. But it is nevertheless true that there is a selection of vital points, usually in suicidal wounds, and gunshot wounds in the vicinity of the heart are among the most frequent. In such cases, suicides almost invariably place the muzzle of the weapon in close proximity with the walls of the chest, and in this case it is evident that the little pistol was held directly against the clothing, which showed powder marks and scorching. The cartridge was so small that the combustion of powder could not have left traces of burning at a distance of more than one or two inches. We may now consider the errand upon which Mr. Wallace went, alleged. The evidence of each member of his family showed that they all knew the purpose of his going from home that afternoon. Their attention individually was called to the fact by Wallace himself, who gave each one to understand that he was going to Mr. Quick's to pay eighty dollars in money. One of the peculiar earmarks which indicate fraud in cases of this character is the overwrought pains which the principal actor takes to prepare the way for a ready explanation of what otherwise would be mysterious. We might cite, in illustration, a certain Connolly case in Kentucky, where the party exhibited his unprecedented roll of greenbacks to diverse parties on the morning of his taking off. The memoranda left by Colvor Corsese to show that he was en route to New York, to deposit with bankers there a large sum of money. The pain Savage took to write his wife that he had drawn a large sum of money that day from his mythical friend, who had just sailed for Europe, and similar characteristic features of paving the way, as manifested in the goss Underzook affair, the Snyder case, and other well-known insurance cases. In this instance, the feature was conspicuously noticeable all through the evidence before the coroner. Mr. Wallace not only informed his wife of the nature of his errand, but called her attention to the envelope which he placed the money. She saw the bills sufficiently to simply notice they were banknotes, but gave the matter no further thought at the time. It was clearly established that Mr. Wallace could have been in possession of no such sum of money at the time, nor could he then obtain it in any legitimate manner. He had exhausted every resource, had borrowed whenever, wherever, and from whomever he could. His creditors were urgent, and legal service threatened. His property was mortgaged for more than it would bring in any kind of sale. It appeared that he could have gone but a few days more without legal steps being taken against him, and such steps once taken, all that he had was irretrievably lost and his family destitute. Among his creditors was the postmaster of an adjoining town. The amount of indebtedness was, originally, $500, but accrued interest had increased it to between $600 and $700. A short time before Mr. Wallace's death, this creditor demanded payment for satisfactory security, and a new note was made out, 
including interest, which note Wallace took home with him, promising to obtain, as security, the endorsement of a neighbor of his. Wallace did not attend to this business as promised, but wrote his creditor under date of September 6th that he had met with an accident on his way home, being thrown out of his wagon, and thereby lost the note from his pocket. At that date, September 6th, according to the tenor of his letter, he was unable to pay anything on the note, and yet he went to the same town a week afterward, and took out $3,000 additional life insurance, the quarterly premium on which was about $80. It is true that he did not pay this premium at that time, and true that he then could not have done so. He did subsequently pay it, as well hereinafter appear. He was not able to pay in full his first quarterly premium on a $9,000 life policy, which he had obtained a few weeks previous to his death, but left a balance of $7.50, which the insurance agent advanced for him, which debt remained unpaid at the time of his death. The agent wrote to Mr. Wallace, dunning him for the $7.50, and received in reply the following letter, written by a son of Mr. Wallace, at the latter's request. Rose Hill, Missouri, August 2nd, 1873. Dear Sir, your letter came to hand a day or two ago, and contents noted. Our harvesting, just over, has taken all the money we had on hand, for help, etc., but as soon as we get some threshing done, we'll market some and send the amount you spoke of. Respectfully, C.S. Wallace. When the threshing was done, the wheat was sold in several small boxes threshed, and the whole netted $110, which Mr. Wallace received cash for. This fact is verified by an examination of Mr. Wallace's account books, which were kept by one of his sons. Of this wheat money, Wallace sent $80 by express to pay the first quarterly premium on the $3,000 life policy, which he recently had applied for. This left him $30 cash on hand, and it could not be shown that he received or paid out $10 from that time to the day of his death. Mrs. Wallace noticed that her husband had bank bills in his hand, and he told her that he was going to pay Mr. Quick $80. Shortly after his death, his son Charles examined a box in the house where his father was known sometimes to place money and papers of value, and therein found the sum of $31.25. Doubtless, this sum was the money which Mrs. Wallace saw, and this is just about the sum he would have had left from the sale of his wheat. No money was found on his dead body, of course not. The last cent he had in the world was left by him in that box in his house. Such was the financial condition of this man, who had just taken out insurances upon his life, the annual premiums of which would amount to $1,100. He could not have paid a second quarterly installment of it. He had not fully paid the first. And yet, for reasons he alone best knew, this hopelessly insolvent debtor made and executed a will. Upon investigation, the fact was transparent that he was for several months planning the suicide, and as he intended to leave his estate solvent to the sums insured on his life, he therefore saw fit to dispose of the property as he wished it to go. The will was written about eight weeks prior to his death, and is peculiar in its minutiae and details. He enumerates and devises his personal property, then on hand, even to ten bushels of potatoes, one broad hoe, and one garden rake. In the history of his insurance, it appears that Mr. Wallace, two months before his death, 
applied for and obtained a $9,000 life policy in the Travelers Insurance Company, and soon afterwards obtained a $5,000 accident policy in the same company, the latter policy being written at the office of a local agency. The head office of the Travelers directed the immediate cancellation of the accident policy, and Wallace then purchased two accident insurance tickets of $3,000 each issued by the Railway Passengers Assurance Company. He took the accident insurance tickets to his former legal advisor and asked to have them placed in the lawyer's safe, saying that he had purchased this insurance to cover a business trip to Philadelphia. The lawyer took the tickets as requested, remarking to Wallace at the same time that it would be much better for him to have a full life insurance policy for $3,000, explaining to him in his apparent ignorance of the facts, that the tickets would cover loss by death under comparatively limited conditions, while the probabilities of his death by disease were vastly greater than by accident. Mr. Wallace listened to this advice with a childlike innocence of ah sin, and acting upon it, at once applied for the $3,000 life policy above mentioned, it being written by the Covenant Mutual Life Insurance Company. Mr. Wallace did not give his attorney the slightest intimation that he, at the very time, held a $9,000 life policy in the Travelers. His reticence upon the subject, under the circumstances, is significant of his fraudulent intentions. Indeed, all the circumstances surrounding the case, whether grouped as a whole or examined in detail, conclusively proved the death of Wallace was the result of a settled and deliberate purpose to destroy himself and defraud the insurance companies. End of section seventy six read by Greg Giordano, Newport Ritchie, Florida.